You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. First and Second Kings, you might go, well, my goodness, what in the world are we doing that many Old Testament books for in a row? And the reason is because First and Second Kings is a decline narrative. And though things actually will get a little better over the coming months during the reign of Solomon, they get worse very quickly after that again. And we're trying to use this decline narrative to make sense of our own culture and our own time. Are we living through decline? And what are we to do and how are we to live in such a time when things seem to be getting worse? That's why we're doing this. And ultimately, we'll see that Israel heads towards exile. For now, though, we've just finished 1 Kings 1 last week, where David finally handed the kingdom over to his son Solomon instead of Adonijah, the other brother who was trying to get the throne. And so now David is trying to give his last-minute instructions to his son Solomon here in 1 Kings 2, verses 1 through 12. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down in Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, And let them be among those who eat at your table, for with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. There's also with me you, Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. And when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. This is the word of the Lord. I have some friends who call a coat of mine that I wear in the winter my dead man coat. Some of you heard me talk about my dead man coat before. It was gifted to me by an elderly gentleman who died in my last church, and it's an awesome winter coat. It's a long wool coat that goes past my knees and keeps me warm, and whenever I'm doing something outside in the winter, my friends will say, bring your dead man coat. Now, whether it's a coat or a house, when things get left in someone's will, we call those things, legally, a legacy. And we call the person who receives them a legatee. Now that word is interestingly bound up with what we normally mean by the word legacy, which is the reputation or influence someone leaves with loved ones for when they die. A legacy. 
Now, chances are some of you, perhaps many of you, can think of a time in your extended family life where the passing on of a will did not go so well. Let's say there were maybe surprises in the will that other people didn't know about, and all of a sudden the lawyer's talking through things, and you're going, oh, no, this is not what we were told at all. Maybe you can think of a, a will poorly written, and you had to go to court to work it out. There's plenty of examples of even a will that's clearly stated, but it's not handled very well. That's why King David takes such pains to instill a legacy here with his son, King Solomon. He's trying to pass on his legacy. He's trying to say, this is my last will and testament. This is what I need you to know before I hand the reins over to you, King Solomon. Let's get the legacy clear. Let's get my expectations clear. So this morning, let's look at the preparations for a legacy, the continuance of a legacy, and the conditions of a legacy. The preparations, the continuance, and the conditions of a legacy. So first, preparations for a legacy. If you've been with us for any of 1 Kings chapter 1, it's important to remember that David has been on his deathbed the entire book so far. And it's no surprise here then at verse 1, It says the time was drawing near for David to die. And so he prepares this charge to his son Solomon. And David starts his speech in verse 2 saying that he was going the way of the earth. This is an allusion all the way back to the introduction of death into the human story in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sin, God tells them you will literally physically die someday. And he uses this phrase, for dust you are and to dust you shall return. As Adam was formed from the dust of the earth. In Genesis 2. For dust you are and to dust you shall return. And David's saying, that's me too. I'm going the way of all the earth. In other words, David is staring his mortality square in the face. He's not hiding from it. And so at the end of the passage, David dies. In verse 10. King David here explicitly is written about more than any other person in the Bible, more than Moses and more than Jesus. Now, we say here at Church of the Redeemer, the whole Bible is about Jesus. But as far as explicit references go, David is written about more than anyone else, and here he was in one verse, and David died. And now it's a poetic phrase. He was buried in the city of David. He slept with his fathers. And then the summary of his reign in verse 11, and David reigned for 40 years. This is enough to humble the pride of anybody. King David is remembered a thousand, well, this is now 3,000 years later. You and I will likely not be remembered at all. But even still, and the person who's written about more than anyone else in the Bible, two verses, he died. He's done. Very few of us get remembered, but we can leave a legacy. Unlike David, only people who stare their mortality in the face will knowingly leave a legacy. You can leave a legacy no matter who you are. But to knowingly leave a legacy means you have to stare your mortality in the face. There was a monastic order in the Catholic Church founded in 1620 in France called the Hermits of St. Paul. Now they did things that monks normally do like visit the sick and give alms or, or gifts of money to the poor that needed it. Another thing they were known for in addition to this, one of the things their monastic order did was prepare bodies for burial that had been capitally executed. Those who had been hung or whatever, they thought it was an act of mercy to take those bodies and prepare them for burial. Now, another weird thing they did, and this may be appropriate right before Halloween, when they dined, 
the centerpieces of their tables were human skulls. This wasn't because they were morbid or gross. It was because they thought it was important. In order to live a holy life, they needed to keep death before them, which is why their salutation, whenever they said goodbye to a friend, they would use this Latin phrase, memento mori, memento mori, which literally means remember your death. Instead of saying goodbye, they'd say, remember your death. And so they earned the nickname, these hermits of St. Paul, they earned the nickname, the brothers of death. Their whole point was, in order to live a holy life, you have to keep your death before you. In order to knowingly leave a legacy, you have to not forget that you are going to die. It seems an odd fixation to us, but there's a reason it's odd to us when it would have been normal to almost all other human beings in human history. Because in 21st century American culture, we have sanitized death more than any other culture known to humanity. There are good things about that. For instance, we've totally dropped the child mortality rate over the last 100 years. But there are other things about that that are pretty tough. If a loved one dies in the hospital, you can be with the body for a little while, but ultimately you are told to leave the hospital. And whether that body is prepared for cremation or embalming, you don't get to be with the body anymore. When loved ones die, I often hear this. This is a consistent refrain I experience in pastoral ministry. When loved ones are in the process of death, we often don't want to bring kids around because we say we want them to remember their loved ones when they were doing better. No other human civilization could have said that until about 70 years ago. So you think the grand scope of human history, we don't want to see our loved ones when they're dying. Most people didn't have access to that. Until about 70 years ago, humans saw their loved ones in anguish going through the process of death. And so it was a lot easier to say, remember your death, because we faced it much more often. The anthropologist Ernest Becker won a Pulitzer Prize in 1973 for saying, the entire scope of Western history now is trying to deny death. The book is called The Denial of Death. And he wrote that as Western religions were on the decline, Judaism, Christianity, people created more illusions to ignore their death or to sanitize our death. Friends, do you want to leave a legacy? If so, then you must be like the brothers of death who stare their mortality in the face and say, I want to knowingly leave a legacy by preparing for my death, by remembering my death. Just like David staring his mortality in the face at the beginning of our passage. This is one reason we practice Ash Wednesday, which is the beginning of Lent, usually somewhere at the beginning of March or the end of February. And we start it on a Wednesday, and people come, and we put ashes on you. And we say with Genesis 3, as God says to Adam and Eve, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Memento mori, remember your death. Friends, you are going to die. All of you. You'll die unless Jesus returns. And it seems like one of the other reasons I know we're ignoring our death is a lot of Christians I know think that Jesus is going to return in their lifetime. And I think it's another way to escape death. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. Even he said he doesn't know when he's coming back. Only the Father in heaven knows. So why don't we plan for our death? Now this doesn't necessarily mean getting busier or getting less busy or anything specific. If you brought 
the chant of memento mori before God in prayer, he would probably reveal to you what you need to leave a legacy for the people around you. If you had a hero complex, maybe God would say, no, I want you to actually tame it. I want you to stop trying to save everyone. I want you to just love those right near you. Or maybe if you, ha- you didn't have enough courage, God would say, no, I actually want you to be more courageous. I want you to be more heroic. Whatever it is, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to this answer. However you're supposed to remember your death, however you're supposed to prepare for your legacy, God can reveal that over the course of your life. Ultimately, preparing for a legacy also means you pass on the legacy to others, which is our next point, the continuance of a legacy, the continuance of a legacy. In verses two through four here of David's speech, he gets rather close to a legacy formulation. Now, a little bit of background here. 800 years prior to David, Israel is on the cusp of getting into the promised land with Moses, and Moses is trying to do the same thing that David's doing with Solomon here, and Moses' successor would be this guy named Joshua. So Joshua tell, or Moses tells Joshua, you're about to go into the promised land, you're supposed to conquer it, be strong and courageous. And when Moses dies, God repeats the same formulation back to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. He goes, it's going to be tough, might be scary, be strong and courageous, And here, in the second half of verse 2, David says to Solomon, Be strong and show yourself a man. That phrase, show yourself a man, is really just a synonym for courage. Women can have courage too. But it's the same formulation. Be strong. And so then we should expect the road for Solomon to be a little difficult. Like Joshua taking over the promised land, we should expect Solomon to have to take care of David's enemies, which is precisely what verses 5 through 9 is all about. It looks like an interruption. You know, in verses 2 through 4, David's saying, walk with the Lord and make sure you're obedient to the Lord. And then all of a sudden in verse 5, it looks like David's getting really vindictive. Take care of these people who have been disloyal to me. But it's not really that at all. It's saying, look, if you're going to be like Joshua, you have a new promised land to conquer, which is to secure peace in my kingdom and to deal with wisdom with those who had been my enemy. In verses 5 and 6, this is Joab, a man of the south, a man of the Judean south, and he had unlawfully killed people without a trial. And David said that was unjust. You can go back and read about some of that in 2 Samuel 3. In verses 8 and 9, it's this guy Shimei, who in 2 Samuel 16 curses David and says, you have been a murderer of Saul's people, which is a lie, but... David thought, maybe this guy's trying to speak a word of the Lord, so I'm not going to put him to death, even though he cursed me. But even still, his loyalty remained in question. Shimei is this man of the north, this man of the northern part of the kingdom. In both cases, David asks Solomon to use his wisdom in how he brings justice to them. And we'll see how he does it next week. Next week will be a little tough, to be perfectly honest. But both cases represent the totality of Judah the southern part of the kingdom, which is where Joab's from, and the northern part of the kingdom, where Shimei is from. And both cases represent the necessary strength and wisdom that David is trying to pass on to Solomon. He's trying to leave a legacy for his son. So I want you to continue my pattern of justice. This is a common desire of fathers and sons to pass on a legacy that the son would continue it. Christopher Tolkien cared so much about his father's legacy, J.R.R., Ron Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, that he compiled all of his dad's old documents on Middle Earth 
And it became the book The Silmarillion, which the Amazon series The Rings of Power is based off of, this kind of prehistory. Similarly, I just read this week of a son who is continuing the legacy of his father in Slovakia. The father had started this museum to remember communist atrocities that he endured and many loved ones around him had endured. And he's a faithful Catholic and he wanted this museum to be dedicated to Christian martyrs. But one of the things the father's realizing is that the younger generation, those who were born after communism, don't remember it and don't care. And so the son is trying to carry on the legacy of the father by continuing the operation of this museum so that state atrocities against free religious belief are never forgotten. What does continuing a legacy mean for us then? Of course, for the true believing Christian, we aren't talking about continuing the legacy of earthly parents necessarily, although that may be true. Many of you have wonderful parents. Some of you didn't. Let's just call it what it is. To the extent that you did have wonderful parents, you can pass on whatever wonderful legacy they have instilled into you, the legacy of hospitality or unconditional love or whatever it's supposed to be. But if you're in the room this morning and you're a Christian, all of us have a legacy. Very rarely does someone become a Christian because of miraculous interventions that God does. It does happen, and I know people to whom it has happened with, whether God speaks in a dream or a vision or something, but ordinarily, this is a key word there, ordinarily, we get the faith in the first place by someone sharing it with us. We grow in the faith by someone building into us. Ordinarily, coming to Christ and growing in Christ are happening through someone else. If you are going to pass on a legacy then, you have to be someone who's not a dead end. You have to be someone who's not a dead end with other people growing in Christ. You can't be a dead end with the Great Commission to share Christ with others and introduce Jesus to others. You can't be a dead end if you're going to continue the legacy that someone built into you. That can happen in lots of ways. Again, there's not a one-size-fits-all here. This is exactly what Paul did with Timothy. Paul, great missionary of the church in the first century. We read the Second Timothy reading, and he's talking to Timothy, and he's saying, like, this is my legacy. Second Timothy is Paul's legacy speech. He's about to die a martyr's death, and he's telling Timothy, you have followed me. You have continued my legacy. And what is the legacy? Think about this for yourself. Paul says to Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. It's not exactly a legacy we want to continue, is it? Passing on my persecutions and my sufferings. And Paul's saying, Timothy, you have done it. So continue my legacy. Now you pass it on to others. It's actually how 2 Timothy 2 it goes. Hey, the, that which you've heard me teach, pass it on to others who will also be able to teach others. Four generations in 2 Timothy 2 too. Continue the legacy. In our age of authenticity, as sociologist Charles Taylor calls it, we admire those people who are vulnerable, who we can suffer alongside us, but we can't forget that if we're actually ever going to make progress in something, we need to follow someone who's ahead of us, not just someone who's beside us. To continue a legacy, somebody has built into your life, continue to pass it on to others, however God is calling you to do that. Now finally, let's look at the conditions for a legacy. 
What do we need to do to make sure the legacy keeps moving on past our time? If we continue the legacy, how do we make sure other people are still continuing the legacy as well? There are two conditions David sets up in his speech in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, David says, To observe what the Lord requires, and in particular stuff from the book of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, so that Solomon may prosper in all he does and wherever he goes, as verse 3 ends. This is ultimately an if-then statement, a conditional statement. If you do these things, then these things will happen. If you walk with the Lord and obey him, then your descendants will prosper. This gets restated in verse 4 for Solomon's descendants. If your descendants watch how they live, if they walk faithfully before God with all their heart and soul, then the Lord will keep his promise, David is essentially saying, to have a king on Israel's throne forever. David says this is the essence of God's promise to him. If these conditions are met, then Israel will have a king on David's throne forever. Makes sense, right? This is certainly the essence of the promises God gave Moses, particularly in Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 28. Hundreds of years before the time of David, God sets these promises in conditions. If these conditions are met, everything's going to go great for Israel. So then, it's important to look back on God's explicit promise to David then. Because David's making reference to it in our passage, and that promise was originally made in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm going to read it to you with a little bit of commentary here. God speaks to David and he says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring, Solomon, to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood, and I, I will establish his kingdom, God says. He's the one who will build a house for my name, which is exactly what happens in the subsequent chapters. Solomon will build the temple. God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. Okay, don't worry about that too much. But, but, my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Pay attention to how that promise to David ended up. It's unconditional. It's unconditional. The promises God makes here, are, there are no conditions for a king being on David's throne forever. These things that you're never supposed to do when you're fighting with your spouse to say, always do this, never do this. God actually does it to David why then does David introduce conditions into his covenant with Solomon? That's the essence of God's promise he made to Moses. 800 years before this, God made promises to Moses in Deuteronomy 17 and 28. And David's appealing to Moses, not his promise directly from God. And all those mistakes that are forecasted end up happening. At the end of 2 Kings, Israel has no king. And Israel is in exile, and they don't have any land. And all these conditions, God said, if you do this, you're going to lose the land. You're going to lose your king. And that all that happened. So then, does God promise something he doesn't keep? Is God a liar? These questions get at the tension at the heart of the Old Testament narrative. This is why, as a Christian, it is so difficult to read the Old Testament. And why certain parts of the Old Testament are like, man, this is really, really harsh. Here's the narrative tension of the Old Testament. Are God's promises unconditional? He's promised it. It's going to happen. Or are they conditional? No, no, no. I've got to obey if I'm going to get the blessing. 
And the tension at the heart of that question explains a lot of Christian division today. If you say, yes, God's promises are conditional, you will get blessing if you obey, you're a fundamentalist or a prosperity preacher. The more faith you have, the more blessing you get, and the more disobedient you are, the more suffering you get. I have encountered many of you who have come from what I would say are pretty tough churches who preach some variation of that, and you were suffering, but you didn't think it was necessarily your fault, and bad things are happening to you, and you're kind of shunned in some ways by the church. Because that church has chosen the conditional answer to the response. Are God's promises conditional? Yeah, you better obey. Fundamentalism certainly has flourished in the Bible Belt. On the other hand, some of you are like, yes, Pastor Dave's taking some punches at the religious right. It's the right-wing fundamentalists. If you choose the answer, no, God's promises are always unconditional, you become much like the liberal church beginning in the 19th century all the way to the present day, which says, no, no, God's promises are unconditional. It doesn't matter what you do. Love wins. Unconditional. If you choose one or the other, you're fundamentalist or you're liberal. If you pick the answer to the question, you're wrong. Much of the liberal fundamentalist divide of the early 20th century, the legacy of which we live with today, turns on the answer to this question. Are God's promises unconditional or are they conditional? And the tension in that question remains throughout the Old Testament and is not answered until you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels of the New Testament. Are God's promises conditional? Yes. In order to share blessing with God's people, we really did need a king who perfectly obeyed the law of God and who perfectly carried it all out. And we have one in Jesus. Are God's promises really unconditional? Yes. Because that king chose to, instead of getting the blessings from his perfect life, share them with his people and die an exile's death. This is why the gospel writers, particularly John and the writer of the Hebrews, are consistently stressing that Jesus died outside the walls of Jerusalem. He died an exile's death. Precisely what happened to Israel at the end of 2 Kings, Jesus endured on our behalf so that he could unconditionally bless those who have loyalty to him. Are God's promises conditional or unconditional? Yes. They are conditioned upon Christ's obedience and unconditional in loyalty to him. The blessings the true eternal king has secured. Friends, to the degree you believe that, you will handle your legacy the way God intends. Think about it. If you know that Christ died the death you should have to meet the conditions that you couldn't, you won't be afraid of your death. You won't be, get that tightness of chest when I say, memento mori, remember your death. You'll be like, hey, I have nothing to fear because my Savior took the punishment for me. If you know that others have followed Christ, however imperfectly, as Christ has been perfect, then you won't let your imperfections get in the way of passing on a legacy to others. In fact, you'll embrace your imperfections. You'll, to the people whom you have influenced around you, you'll say, hey, I know I'm messing this up, but I care. To the degree you know that Christ is the legacy for you, you can be a legacy to others. We can leave a legacy because Christ is the legacy for us. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.